It's my pleasure to introduce tonight's speaker, Julia Swag. Julia E. Swag is the Nelson and David Rockefeller Senior Fellow for Latin America Studies and Director for Latin America Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. She's the author of Inside the Cuban Revolution, Fidel Castro and the Urban Underground, and numerous other publications on Latin America and American foreign policy. Most recently, she is the author of Cuba, What Everyone Needs to Know. And I guess the three things that I'd like to know, but I'm sure there's plenty of other questions as well, are is Cuba's dedication to healthcare service as good as they present it to be? Is Cuba the home of more 57 Chevys than anywhere else in the world? And I don't know if you saw the news today, but apparently Lula da Silva had a very important meeting with Fidel Castro and gave him his ringing endorsement saying he was fit as a fiddle. So I'd like to hear your comments on that. So everyone, please join me in welcoming Julia Swig. Thank you for having me. Good evening, everybody. I, I grew up for part of my life in San Francisco and always had this kind of snobby Northern California feeling about Southern California, but I've come to uh, L.A. almost every year for the last few years uh, for work, and I love L.A., and I didn't know about um, this center or Zocalo until very recently, so I'm very pleased to be here, and thank you for braving the drizzle. Thank you for inviting me. My best friend from San Francisco from uh, my childhood is here with me tonight, so it's a great time. I'm very happy to be here. First, let me um, answer your questions, two of the three of which I think are answered in that book, um, which is uh, yes and yes to one and two, and number three, Fidel Castro's health, I'll get to in a bit. Tonight, I think uh, what I'd like to do is spend about 30 or 35 minutes before I take your questions talking about, and, and here this is hard for me because one of the hats I wear in life is as a historian, and instead of focusing on the last 200 years or, or 150 years or 100 years of Cuban history or the history of U.S.-Cuban relations, I'm only going to focus on the last four or five years, which doesn't even really count as history, but it is the recent years that have made the story of Cuba a little bit compelling since Fidel Castro became sick, stepped aside, and since his brother took office. Another uh, serendipitous note is that today, February 24th, marks the second anniversary of Raul Castro formally taking office of head of state of Cuba. So your timing, Zocalo, is excellent. So what I'll do is speak a little bit about three geographic nodes of um, interest in the Cuba story and the story of U.S.-Cuban relations. I'll start in Havana. I'll then make my way north up to Miami. Then I'll land in Washington and try to tie together what's taking place now between those three um, focal points and what we might expect in the near future. The, the first thing to note very, very rapidly is that in the summer of 2006, as you all know, Fidel Castro announced that he would be stepping aside and handing over provisional power to his brother and a handful of his closest comrades and that he, we later learned, had severe intestinal illness, probably diverticulitis, and over the course of the second half of 2006, came very near to dying and recovered. And to answer your third question, seems from all accounts to be doing extraordinary well, extraordinarily well. And just as a personal story, to be 
80 years old and, and become so ill, and now at 83 to find himself not governing, not living on that adrenaline of the last 50 years is probably quite a feat. So Lula's report uh, coincides with others that I have heard. When Fidel uh, turned power, provisional power first over to his brother, over the subsequent 18 months, Raul Castro and the inner circle, some of whom are no longer there, have been purged, in fact, create, started a process on the island of uh, encouraging the Cuban public to air their grievances about the Cuban system, to come out more publicly and freely than really ever before, probably, about the, the problems with the system. Not sort of in a counter-revolutionary mode, but in the vein of constructive citizen dialogue. And over those 18 months in taking uh, the public pulse, Raul quietly build, began to build a consensus within the military, within the party, within the nomenclatura of what Cuba might need to put on the table in terms of changes and reforms in order to sustain the legacy of the revolution. So that by the time he took office in February of 2008, he was able to lay out an agenda, a very modest reform agenda, that was responsive to those gripes that were heard on the ground in Cuba. That agenda, first, before I describe what was in the agenda, let me say that one of the first things to note was the length of his inaugural address. 34 minutes. 34 minutes, by contrast to the several hour speeches of his brother, was right out of the box refreshing and raised expectations for um, and coincided with the sense that this was a more pragmatic man, more focused on efficiency. And in fact, what we heard and what the Cuban public heard in that inaugural address was an agenda that talked about reducing the size of the bureaucracy, beginning to take steps to improve what he described as to improve the material and spiritual lives of the Cuban people. He didn't talk about the market or economic reform, but he talked about more efficiency, more productivity, and he talked about substituting the idea of equality of opportunity for the long-standing equality of income that the Cuban Revolution had put in place over the previous 50 years. Often he sounded more like Karl Marx than, excuse me, more like Margaret Thatcher than Karl Marx in emphasizing the need to not so much tighten belts, but for hard work to be rewarded properly rather than for most of the population on the island's custom of really living on the dole of the state, receiving numerous freebies, and creating a dynamic in which the state, the level of expectations for, of the population of the state were just more than the state could deliver. He talked about instituting, and has done this, an agrarian reform of quite substantial reach. He talked about, and this responded a lot to the complaints by Cubans of the abrogation they felt of their basic rights of citizenship, of um, um, allowing Cubans to buy computers, buy cell phones, use uh, foreign hotel, hotels that had been previously only available to foreign tourists. He hinted at the elimination of the state's requirement that Cubans ask for permission before they travel. That has not yet come. And he talked about um, insisting on uh, uh, eliminating large swaths of the bureaucracy. He hinted at um, privatizations to come without using that word. What the essence of those 34 minutes did was to raise expectations that he would be instituting, uh, uh, certainly on the economic front, not on the political front, um, 
creating more space to, for Cubans to seize opportunity to get the state out of their way a bit more. At the same time that their expectations were raised by Raul Castro himself and by Fidel stepping aside, uh, we in the United States were also involved in an election campaign in 2008. And the prospect of a Democrat winning after eight years of policy of uh, George W. Bush characterized by an emphasis on regime change toward Cuba, there was a very great deal of excitement on the island and once uh, Barack Obama was selected as the Democratic Party's nominee, even more so because Obama's campaign platform was um, quite direct, not its platform, but part of his campaign hinted and, and made um, overtures toward a new policy toward Cuba. But by the middle of 2008, the, the modest and moderately paced reform agenda that uh, Raul began to implement came to a, a substantial slowdown for three reasons. Number one, the global food, food and fuel crisis hit, and the, the financial calculus that, that the 2006 to 2008 period was based on was a period of high growth, of high commodity export revenue, of high tourist income, remittance income. Even the CIA was reporting that Cuba was registering four, five, six, seven, seven percent growth as the rest of Latin America did in the, uh, the, the middle of the, the first decade of the century. But the food and fuel crisis hit, followed by three hurricanes that took out 10% of Cuba's GDP, followed by the global financial crisis. Those three dynamics stalled the process internally in Cuba. And then the Cuban government also decided to wait to see what would come from the Obama administration. So in Havana, expectations raised, but then a very slow process of moving forward on those expectations. Barack Obama campaigned <clears throat> in Miami. Now I'm moving a little bit to, to Miami. The Miami environment um, has been typically um, held responsible for implement, imposing a, a real freeze on U.S.-Cuban relations. Domestic politics really do frame U.S. policy toward Cuba and the um, impact that the, the weight of the Cuban-American voting population um, in delivering 27 electoral votes on presidential politics, always very important, as well as campaign finance contributions from Cuban-Americans to members of Congress. But in Miami, we have seen in the last several years, if you wish, from the period of Elian Gonzalez um, to the leading up to the concert by Juanes in the fall of, of this past year, a real shift in public opinion among the Cuban-American community. Um, this is in part due to demographic changes. Uh, about 400,000 Cubans have moved here from 1994, not as political as the first generation um, of Cuban-Americans. And also just the sort of passing of the founding generation and the um, fatigue with the fight to unseat Castro. Cuban-Americans are now more American than Cuban in the sense that their priorities happen are domestic or they might complain about foreign policy generally, but they're not so single-minded in their focus around Cuba. 
So that created the environment in 2008, again, during the campaign, for Barack Obama to go to Miami, to the Cuban-American National Foundation's um, center, the center of the traditional Cuban exile anti-Castro uh, movement in Miami, and campaigned for um, opening ties between Cuban-Americans and the island and beginning to uh, reach out, as he said, not only to adversaries generally, but to Cuba specifically. He won in 2008 about 35% of the Cuban-American vote, which is the same percentage that Bill Clinton won in 1992, only campaigning on dramatically different platforms. In 92, Clinton campaigned to bring the hammer down on Castro. In 2008, Barack Obama uh, hints at a bit of an opening and got you could say only 35% of the vote, but um, in a Miami where the dominant Cuban-American opinion is quite a bit more um, progressive than the vocal Cuban-American representatives in Congress would um, let one think. So Miami has changed a great deal um, in this recent period. Now let me come up to Washington, and I will uh, talk for just a couple of minutes about the legacy of the first uh, eight years of this of the U.S. policy toward Cuba. Um, rapidly summarizing the previous 40 years, as you know, we have had a policy of diplomatic isolation, economic sanctions, and um, uh, uh, an intention, really even actually since Fidel Castro, since before he took power, first of preventing the consolidation of the regime, and really ever since, whether it be in the context of the Cold War or subsequently, um, keeping the regime off balance. And um, it's now framed as promoting democracy, creating civil society. I don't mean to sound cynical, but you can, we'll into the conversation, you, and then a little bit later you might hear why I sound that way. When Fidel Castro announced his illness, it was about two weeks after the Bush administration had released the second in a giant voluminous, um, a, a giant two, the second of two very significant reports that laid out the blueprint of the Bush administration for um, how it would relate to and encourage a transition to democracy in Cuba. And that blueprint very explicitly, almost verbatim, talked about the importance of the United States interrupting the succession strategy of the Castro brothers. Um, when his illness was announced, what did not happen is the regime did not collapse overnight. There was a very stable succession after, as we've seen over the last two years. But because in the early part of this century, the Bush administration cut off largely all of the informal, cultural, and educational ties that had begun to grow in the 1990s, had there been any sort of chaotic upheaval in Cuba, the United States would have been left at sixes and sevens without really a fresh Rolodex of individuals to call on the island. Our Coast Guards deal with one another, but by the time Barack Obama came into power, there was very uh, little communication. So 2009, President Obama takes office, and the first thing he's looking at on the calendar is um, a summit where all of the Latin American and Caribbean heads of states are going to get together in Trinidad, Tobago. And what President Lula has begun campaigning on since with President Bush and then through the early presidency, the early months of the Obama administration was an insistence that Latin America would regard 
Barack Obama's policy toward Cuba as a barometer of the administration's seriousness about turning over a new leaf generally toward Latin America. And um, there was a kind of a head-scratching response to this because it was in Washington, it wasn't only Lula, it was virtually a unanimous position by every head of state, left, right, and center in Latin America, that it was really time to drop this um, obsession with Cuba and move on to a more natural relationship. And so in the first few months of the administration, uh, Washington focused on trying to come up with some measures that would show Latin America uh, a new day had really dawned and this was change that you could believe in. And so Obama went to Trinidad-Tobago, announced that Cuban-Americans would be able to visit the island freely, announced that American telecom carriers would be uh, given the right to go and negotiate phone service, but there it stopped. A couple of other um, bilateral diplomatic mechanisms were put back in place in the course of 2009, but where we stand today is that I would say that still the Obama administration's policy toward Cuba is more Bush than Obama. And that might begin to change. There's some reasons for it that are not intrinsic to Cuba that have to do with the coup in Honduras and how it hamstrung American diplomacy toward Latin America, which in turn froze the bureaucracy and uh, petrified policymakers from doing the right thing on Cuba. In any case, the effect inside of Cuba of the perception of a very slow movement by the Obama administration was um, puzzlement, surprise, disappointment, um, and where we stand today is that I'm sure that you can see uh, the rhetoric has heated up again in Havana. There was a sort of one-year honeymoon and expectation, and those expectations have been um, largely defied um, by the, the, the slow pace of movement so far. The environment in Cuba, and I want to go back to the island for a second, in the last couple of years has gone from one of high expectations for change to one of um, a solvency crisis in which over the last year the Cuban government stopped, uh, froze the accounts of foreign companies doing business on the island. A, um, severe uh, shortage as a result of food, as a result of uh, the hurricanes, that has begun to be repaired. A slowdown to a certain extent in foreign investment on the island and a real um, open question about Cuba's future. Now the interesting thing about that open question is that Cubans are out in the open about the fact that, it, that it, their future on, is on the table. And so for the first time in decades, I would say that debate even now beginning to be reflected in Cuba's state-run press, is more open than ever. You go to granma.com or Juventud Rebelde, the major newspapers of the country, and you see a level of criticism that under the Fidel Castro regime didn't really exist. The, the Communist Party's um, supposed to meet every five years and have a large party congress. It was supposed to happen in 2009. It's been delayed again. Why is that? Because in Cuba there's no consensus about how rapid a pace of change the regime itself and the population can endure.
oddly enough, this sort of very difficult domestic, economic, and material environment is taking place in a context internationally that's probably the most favorable, other than the U.S. relationship, that Cuba has ever had. Cuba has gone from, in the 1970s and 1980s, to being um, outside in the main of the international system, to um, fomenting revolution in Latin America and Central America, troops in Africa, to being firmly rooted within um, the new regional organizations in Latin America, to having diplomatic ties with almost every major and minor country that's a member of the General Assembly, to um, having a parade of heads of state, not only Latin Americans in the last couple of years, but Russia, China, um, uh, the, 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 the diplomacy and the support that Cuba has to um, see that there is, whatever the post-Castro future, a soft landing and a stable transition is really quite remarkable. And during the period of the Bush administrations, this was enhanced because Cuba's critique of American power came to be shared um, globally. Um, and, and so Cuba gained many friends, um, uh, with the exception of the United States. Um, right now, we have um, an environment in which the administration, the Washington and Havana are sort of stuck. Washington has framed the prospect of future change in its policy toward Cuba as uh, dependent upon internal concessions or gestures made by the Raul Castro regime. This is a formula that puts change in American policy in the hands of a man who, like his brother, is deeply nationalist, deeply protective of Cuba's sovereignty, and um, deeply committed to preserving what he and the founding fathers of mo and mothers of that revolution perceive as the central, their central legacy to Cuban future generations. Number one is a basic social welfare net. The healthcare system, like the educational system, has experienced huge hits in the last few years, several years, last decade, let's say. But still, Cuba registers, by comparison to Latin American and Caribbean countries, very, very impressive marks in terms of infant mortality, maternal mortality, life expectancy. The diseases that Cubans die of are the diseases that um, individuals in advanced industrialized countries die of. Cuba's life expectancy it's in, in, it, excuse me, is such that the Cuban state now has to figure out how to pay for the pensions and health care of a very elderly population. Sound familiar? So um, the, and, and it is um, in an environment in which there's almost zero productivity, very, very high unemployment. So that's one legacy that the, the founding regime, revolutionary regime, is interested in preserving. And the second one is a, a, a deep sense of the importance of maintaining distance from Washington, lest the, the, the empire gobble up all of the gains internally that that revolution has delivered and that the nationalist revolutions perceived to have been thwarted time, again, time and again, first by Spain and then by the United States. So the notion that, that Washington won't move until Cuba gives up those gains leads us into this um, almost stasis that we're in at the moment. 
I want to make a couple of remarks about some recent events that I'm sure that some of you have followed. One of the, the, the legacies that we see that the Bush administration, that the Obama administration has not yet addressed was manifest recently in the arrest of an American by the name of Alan Gross, who is now in jail in Havana since early December. Mr. Gross is um, in jail in Havana uh, after having spent, made several trips, I don't know how many, to Cuba, working on behalf of an American uh, Beltway bandit, uh, one of these contractors that bids on contracts from the US um, Agency for International Development. And he has been going down there, as have many others from the United States and around the world, with um, funded by the U.S. government to um, promote democracy in Cuba, build civil society. Um, the objective of his trips and others have been to try to um, implement what was in those Bush administration sort of transition documents, implement call it regime change, call it a more open society. The perception in Havana has been that he is um, being used and representing the U.S. government in order to, um, to uh, try to unseat the government's hold on power. So they arrested the man. The man's still in jail. And his um, um, incarceration may go on for some time. There's no evidence of a negotiation taking place to be released. But what the effect of the arrest has been, and what the objective of the arrest has been, was been to force the US administration to focus on the utility of these programs. And so that policy review that the administration promised it itself would do when it came into office is being forced by a very unfortunate uh, decision by the Cuban government. As a result, these programs, in fact, have been frozen. A second event that I want to talk about just a little bit, also that just happened yesterday and um, kind of overtook, in a sense, President Lula's visit, was the death of a Cuban dissident in, um, after an 11-week hunger strike. And um, this is unconscionable, and I say that as somebody who has, is very, very clear about the uh, history of, of dissidents in, on the island. I have been in Cuba's prisons. I have interviewed political prisoners and dissidents. And um, Raul Castro, in an off-the-cuff remark to the press, um, characterized this man's death somehow as the fault of the United States. Now, this, this moment in which they're holding Alan Gross, a 70-year-old man, in jail, and this uh, dissident has died of a, from a hunger strike, is really um, a, a serious one. And I have to tell you that, that when I was writing that book of La two years ago, I did not imagine that with Fidel Castro no longer in power and with Barack Obama in office, the two countries would have come to this moment of just profound um, discord and irrationality. I want to say a little bit about two pieces of U.S. policy that... Um, that uh, need to, to get some focus. First of all, the Obama administration does not hold all the power to change policy toward Cuba. The US Congress has um, some cards to play as well. The administration, the executive branch of the United States government since 1997 when the Helms-Burton law was passed uh, lost a great deal of its capacity to lift and impose 
sanctions against Cuba. Congress now holds most of the cards in order to do that. And some of you know that in the U.S. Congress there has been legislation to end the travel ban, legislation to um, open up part of the sanctions. And as a result of that legislative momentum, a new bill to lift the travel ban sponsored by Congressman Pete Stark was introduced uh, just the other day. As a result of that legislation, the Obama administration has decided that it is um, not as necessary as it might otherwise have been to get out in front of the Cuba issue. The, um, and at this stage, I would say that the likelihood that we will see the Congress lift the travel ban is probably small. The Miami environment is likewise also a confusing one. The public opinion in Miami is now at the moment far ahead of where Washington is, amazingly. And yet, Cuban-American representatives in Congress have dug their heels in even more. The Democratic Party's leading um, Hispanic uh, senator, Senator Bob Menendez of New Jersey, likewise has an enormous effect on um, holding this policy into sight a t such a tight lock and has um, effectively signaled to presidential aspirants in the future that his capacity to direct Cuban-American campaign finance is sufficient enough that um, there is leeriness in the White House, in the, the Democratic National Committee, about moving forward. There's maybe a couple of things that could change this very dark scenario that I hear myself painting. And one of them is oil and energy. I wish we had a map of the Gulf of Mexico and of Cuba sitting right in the middle of it, because what you would see there is that, <clears throat> and according at least to the Cuban um, energy sources, Cuba believes that it is sitting on um, upwards of 15, um, I'm going to get this number wrong, and I'm sorry, I think it might be because I'm a bit jet-lagged, but I think the number is, um, is an extraordinary number, according to Cuba, of uh, oil in its offshore waters. And if you look at the map, you'll see that it has offered an, um, energy, state energy companies and private energy companies from all over the world have bid on concessions to explore and ultimately drill for oil. The slots of um, the, the parts of the Cuban territorial waters that have not yet been um, allowed, uh, given concession to foreign oil companies, are the ones that are closest to American territorial waters in the Gulf of Mexico. I think this is a strategic decision by the Cuban government to entice American energy companies into making the case with their own government and with their Congress that the um, energy matrix such as it is and the dependence on Middle East oil needs to change and that therefore this would be another incentive to do business with Cuba. Um, I have to say, it's a bit of a stretch, but it's, it's, it's possible that should Cuba with Chinese, Brazilian, Spanish, Vietnamese exploration in the next couple of years, and this is what Cuba speculates, hits on a major oil find, this in fact could finally overturn the lock that domestic politics has still on Cuba policy. The other thing that could um, bring an end to this stasis, of course, has to do with the march of time. It's uncomfortable to think about or to, to talk about in polite company. But Fidel Castro is 83. His brother is 78. There is only, are only so many more years that the um, Castro 
uh, presence can be governing at the top of the ticket, if you will, in Cuba. And um, I think the passage of time, we're now at the 50-year mark of this revolution, will also in itself open up space. There's a couple of counterintuitive things that have, not counterintuitive, and I want to close on this. I, I, know, I mentioned Cuba's very remarkable um, public debate that's taking place about its future. And also, if any of you have been in Cuba, you notice that um, Cuba's cultural life is very, very rich. The artistic and um, intellectual and um, uh, uh, painterly, sculpture, dance, musical life of Cuba is enormously open and enormously compelling. The other thing that's happened in the last few years is that Cuba has become because of the leadership of Raul Castro's daughter, a leader in, in the third world and in Latin America and advocating the rights for the rights of sexual diversity. And Cuban surgeons are now being trained and um, performing um, um, operations on people who want to change their sexual identity. The Cuban Family Code is being rewritten to give much more space to gays and lesbians. The, um, this is profound given Cuba's history of repression of homosexuals early in the period of the revolution and in the environment of um, um, conservative approaches in Africa and Latin America, Cuba's leadership with the blessing of the founding family of this is, is quite remarkable and it gives you a sort of sense along with the um, achievements on the healthcare front that inside of all of this um, difficulty and uncertainty and material deprivation, there is inside of Cuba an incredibly impressive society and a very, very cosmopolitan and well-trained population. And I think, to, to close, the challenge will be how to figure out that Cuba can remain confident enough to empower this population and retain and, and build um, a sense among the youth 60% of Cuba's population was born after 1959, but retain a sense among the youth, those in their 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s, that they really are stakeholders and participants and citizens. And that really is the challenge on the table. That's what's being debated there. And refreshingly, what we're hearing less and less of under Raul Castro, is, with the exception of the comment today, is that the United States really has anything to do with this. The United States has been such an active uh, actor inside of Cuban domestic politics, even without diplomatic and trade ties. And what is happening today is a sort of facing the fact that although the embargo hurts Cuba, although the isolation is unnatural and un unhealthy, it is no longer possible to blame most of Cuba's problems on the United States, and that is enormously healthy. So I'm going to stop there and then take your questions. Thank you. Stephen Davis. Uh, the LA Times reported on Sunday that there's a so-called high-level delegation from Washington that's in Havana now supposedly negotiating with a high-level Cuban delegation. Could you shed some light on what they're talking about? I, I, if I know. Um, I think the delegation came home. They were there for a few days last week. This was the principal deputy secretary, assistant secretary of state, Craig Kelly, who works on Latin America. Um, he was also held that same position before Obama came into office. The 
bilateral diplomacy has begun to renew itself a little bit between the two countries. And so they, between 1994 and 2003, the United States and Cuba met twice a year um, officially to monitor the implementation of a bilateral immigration agreement that we have that allows Cubans to send 20,000 people here a year. That, those talks were cut off in 2003 and have been reinstated. So this was the second time the two countries had met under the guise of the immigration talks. But they were talking about a bit more than immigration. Cuba, six months ago, and then more recently put together, put forward a proposal for cooperation on counter-narcotics and on disaster preparedness and relief, and had not yet heard a response from the United States, put that back on the table. It was a fairly high-level dele high delegation, um, and I'm sure that they were talking about how to get Alan Gross released. But one of the things that happened after the formal meetings was that um, the United States, our diplomat in residence there, not an ambassador called a chief of the U.S. interest section, hosted a get-together for the American delegation with Cuban dissidents. And this just created havoc for, Cuban, for the Cuban head of state for Cuban diplomacy. I, I want to be clear, Cuban dissidents, there are inside of Cuba's official institutions, cultural institutions, educational institutions, there is an enormous range of thought and criticism. A lot of that criticism overlaps with the critiques and views about the future of people that are official dissidents. But these dissidents have been, um, first of all, I'm going on a bit, but I think it's an important point because as high level as it was, the damper was what happened afterwards. Um, the dissidents have been historically recipients of American assistance, part of these regime change programs. Some of them yes, some of them no. What the Cuban government has done is create dissident organizations in order to penetrate them. And it's a very sort of ugly and awful game that's going on, but the fact of the high-level delegation combined with what happened afterwards sort of indicates just how we are absolutely speaking past one another. Manny Wise, uh, I'm just curious, uh, what is the, uh, is, or is there any danger to the American tourists today traveling to Cuba? Danger... Well, first of all, Americans can't go to Cuba as tourists, so they're protected. Um, <laughs> first line of defense, they can't go. Uh, Cuba is the only country in the world that the United States government uh, prohibits its citizens from traveling to. So if you're a Cuban... So you can't go, and if you can go... Well, if you, if you can go, you go with a religious or an educational institution that has a license, and getting those licenses is an enormously heavy lift now. Um, but danger on the ground in Cuba once you get there? No. Unless you're bringing in satellite equipment, and then the government will arrest you. Hi, I'm Robert Von Bargen. Uh, you have not discussed the issue of race at all, and I wonder whether the book does or whether you could expand on it a little bit here the extent to which the changes you've talked about uh, are across the board racially. The book does talk uh, a bit about race in historic context and in the contemporary context. Um, well, the changes that I'm talking about are involve everyone in Cuba, but most many people in Cuba, including its Afro-Cuban majority, 
don't yet necessarily feel that they're being positively affected by them. That is, the changes are glacial, and the, the race and racism in Cuba are increasingly top of mind for lots of reasons. There's a, but it's one of the issues that has sort of come out into the open as um, one that Cubans as a society need to address. The, I, when I first, not when I first went to Cuba, but on one of my early trips, it was going into Cuba's prisons with uh, what was then America's Watch and interviewing political prisoners and common criminals. And I was stunned, but, but I guess not surprised in a certain sense, that the majority of the prison population, as in the United States, was black. Um, and when you look at sort of the, the, the photographs of the leaderships, the, the leadership um, of the military, of the party, of the National Assembly, it's equally not representative of the population, but more representative than our own. And part of that is by design because, the, for example, when the National Assembly uh, members, there are 500 or some of them, are elected, the tickets are put together by groupings that sort of do, that sort of pick and choose young, women, black, increasingly more so. But in terms of the distribution of power at the top, it's very uneven. The distribution of benefits at the bottom, of course, is much more egalitarian, and Afro-Cubans have become, to a, a great extent, over time, the fundamental uh, political base of the revolution because they've benefited from its material gains. Hi, I'm Gary Boyd. Uh, how would you describe, generally, the uh, current human rights situation in Cuba from the perspective of the ordinary citizen? That's what's been on the table without calling it a discussion about human rights inside of Cuba. Um, you know, Cuba's a one-party state. Uh, everybody votes. Um, <laughs> the mass membership in mass organizations is required, but increasingly less enforced than it used to be. Um, this is an incredibly loaded question. The, it, it is not a liberal democracy. It is a place where you don't see beggars, and so on the social side, the, the rights of Cubans are avidly um, and aggressively protected by the state, one could say. But the opportunity to make for oneself is very limited, and the opportunity for dissent of course, is incredibly circumscribed still. Now, but that has begun to change. Um, Cubans now have more access to free speech than they've had in the past. They, there is still no, um, there's not a multi-party democracy, and actually I don't see that coming anytime soon. So my, without going on too much about this, I would, uh, the number of political prisoners is about 200. Um, this is not saying much, but for most of the period of the last 25 years, it's been in the thousands, and it's continued to come down. Cuba also, under Raul Castro, um, abolished the death penalty. So, so on some areas, the question of rights in Cuba is quite ample, but on other, the civil political, enormously circumscribed. Thank you. My name is Brock Schamberg. Uh, recently, the, I believe it was a minister of Spain and his wife who were, had been granted a visa for travel to Cuba on a vacation were turned around at the airport and refused admission in Cuba. Do you, uh, can you shed any light on that or uh, give us the inside story? No. And were prohibited from, and were prohibited from entering? 
they, they were literally turned around and shipped back. I, I, I'm sorry that I don't know that story, and it's not one of the many questions and what everyone needs to know. I mean, I, I apologize. I, I, I don't know what that story is at all. My name is Carol Kraser. Uh, I'm one of the fortunate tour operators that does have religious visas to Cuba. My question is, um, Alan Gross, why was it reported in the press that he was part of a Jewish organization delivering computers, so forth, to the Jewish community? Well, so as I understand it, he was, his initial involvement in bringing satellite equipment and other equipment to Cuba originated in his temple in the Washington, D.C. area. Um, but if you know Cuba, you know that the Jewish community of Cuba is probably one of the most well-connected communities in Cuba. So I, I actually wrote my undergraduate thesis about the Jewish community in Cuba. So I would, was very surprised and am surprised if it's the case that he was going to bring Adela Dwornan stuff. That would be highly unlikely. Um, you know, he's, I don't know if it's sort of, you know, he's Jewish, so therefore he's working for the Jews. I, honestly, I, I have no idea, but she very rapidly said, he's not, you know, talking to us. This is not, no flies on me here. So the truth is, I, I don't know, but he was working for the U.S. government, albeit a subcontractor and part of a program that was aimed at helping inspire an alternative view to the status quo there. Name is Bob Akinahorai. Wanted to know why is U.S. considered to be so important in the whole process? Meaning if the Cubans have access to all the other nations in the world, why is it that we think that all of a sudden the connection between the U.S. and Cuba is going to have these enormous changes. Number one. Number two, or perhaps related, in mm -hmm. a world where things are moving so rapidly between, I mean, why, for example, aren't the Chinese interested in um, having a foothold in, in Cuba, or are they? The, your first question I'll take first, and it's an excellent one, and I landed on the note of noting that really for the first time in a, quite a long time, Cubans themselves are coming to terms with the fact that the United what the United States does or doesn't do really can't be the first and last sentence of every discussion about Cuba's own future. And I focused a bit about on the United States myself because I'm in Washington and that's um, what I live and breathe. But the psychology in Cuba and the strength of the national security mentality in Cuba is such that with being only 90 miles away and having a large part of its population living in the United States and having a long history of American power exercising so much um, weight in internal Cuban politics, there is uh, a sense that what Washington does does matter. Of course, Fidel Castro and Raul Castro have y used a hostile U.S. policy to drum up Cuban nationalism, which has strengthened them and helped them stay in power. Um, it is unnatural, the fact that the, the two countries don't have a more uh, porous relationship and probably 
the beginning of a more uh, open ties between the two countries would be more healthy for both. But I would never argue that lifting the embargo tomorrow would bring democracy and a market economy to Cuba the next day uh, by any stretch of the imagination. And like in the rest of the world, Cuba has the rest of the world has come to Cuba, and Cuba has diversified its trade and diplomatic portfolio substantially. Venezuela is its number one uh, trade partner. China's number two. Canada, Spain, Mexico, Brazil, they're all in there. Russia is coming back. Um, and so the, the bandwidth that Cuba preserves for the United States is actually getting smaller and smaller, even as close as we are. Um, I'm wondering, to your knowledge, if, if there's any wariness amongst the, um, the current Cuban leadership and even the, the current Cuban populace as to um, how much of an impact or, or to what extent the country wants to open up relations with the U.S. and if there's wariness around um, what that can do to the country's ability to preserve its, its culture. You know, your question reminds me of an architect and urban planner that I know in Cuba who talks about the debates that architects and urban planners are having in Cuba about how to preserve just its, its beautiful seawall and the view and prevent McDonald's and Burger King and high-rises. And, uh, you know, uh, you've seen what's happened in downtown Miami in the last 20 years. Right, that that's a scenario that many in Cuba hope to avoid. So it's it's a real issue on the table, and um, but I think uh, the overwhelming sense is still in Cuba with the family ties, which with what President McKinley called our ties of singular intimacy, with our cultural affinity, with the kind of natural simpatico that Cubans and Americans have for one another. That all things being equal. Um, the end of this nonsense will, at the end of the day, be better and healthier for Cuba than keeping it in place. Hello, I'm Jeff Haig. Uh, so uh, uh, what are your thoughts of where Cuba, America will be in five to ten years? <sighs> I, I, I have a big smile on my face because I first went to Cuba in 1984 and I would never have believed that I'd be sitting here in 2010 essentially describing a situation that's closer to 1984 than it is to, you know, something that I imagined. So five to ten years, look, you know, Raul Castro is, first let me take Cuba. He, Raul Castro is in his, has just completed his second year of a five-year term. He was elected to a five-year term by the National Assembly. Um, when he was elected, the speculation by the sort of plugged-in diplomats on the ground was that he would not serve more than one term, that he was giving himself a five-year period to move Cuba toward a well-functioning market economy, political arrangements to stay more or less the same, and that in that five years, maybe substantial movement from Washington would allow him at the end of that term to really turn the reins over to some unnamed successor. But what's happened over the last two years is that everything has started to move a lot more slowly. We don't even know who his successor really will be. The purges that happened in 2009 of some of the younger um, in the inner circle leave a real question mark. I'm sure there's somebody, but we just don't know who it is yet. Ten years is a better mark, though. 
10 years gives us potentially two terms of an Obama administration. Um, and it gives us the possibility that the, the stickiness of the Castro dynasty will <laughs> begin to come undone. Um, so, but I, but I really think that it is, um, there is not going to be a big bang. We are not going to wake up one day and have the Castro's gone, the embargo gone, and Cuba somehow becoming a glorious social democracy. This will be a period that might unfold over the next mm, 20, 30 years. Hi, my name is Albert Neal, and I have a two-part question. One, um, going to school and studying uh, Latin American studies, um, I used to hear a lot about machismo in, the, in some of these countries. And so my question is, you know, what do you have to say about women's rights, welfare, and well-being, and that of children? And then I have a second question. Uh, you already mentioned something about the architecture, and I wanted to know um, visually what is Cuba looking like as far as uh, the mansions and just other structures. I know that you know, 57 Chevys is pretty much to stay with transportation. What about the architecture? Yeah, that's you, you packed a lot in for the last question of the night. <laughs> um, I, I, is your question about women and children and rights limited to Cuba, or are you talking about all of Latin America? Cuba. Okay. Children are the most beloved creatures in Cuban society and are doted after and provided for in ways that, I mean, I'm sort of melting telling you this because I brought my own daughter there several times before she was two years old when I was doing my doctoral research there. And the society is just enamored of little babies. So my husband walking around in hot Havana while I was in the archives would routinely just run into people who would grab the baby and kiss and hug her. And, you know, it, there's a, it's a real kid culture there. And then in addition, you know, there is sort of guaranteed education, school uniforms, supplies, all of this, of course, in extreme, not extreme, but, but in need of, of, of more resources. Uh, the teaching profession has suffered a lot because teachers are undervalued as they are in our society, not paid enough, leaving education in order to go make money in the black market or in the limited private sector. But kids in general have, you know, the, they have on their meal cards more meat, more milk, uh, access to health care. They're a, a well-taken-care-of sector of the Cuban population. Women, likewise, I mean, the trajectory of the last 50 years in Cuba was that women were not participants in a healthy way in the professional world, in the marketplace, and have become enormously successful profession professionally. They are doctors and lawyers and judges and scientists and artists, and they're also as here, working outside of the house, and now but still working inside of the house. Um, the f original family code in Cuba, which stipulated more rights for women, has now been vastly expanded. None of that means that machismo, sexism is over, is gone. It's still there, but men have been socialized over the last 50 years to respect some, some boundaries that didn't previously exist. Architecture. Your question is, what's it like? In Havana, well, I mean, look at the mansions. Look, in Havana, you have dozens of styles of 20th century architecture alone. You have colonial architecture. You know, you have 
um, Mies van der Rohe. You have um, these elegant mansions that you've talked about. Some of them are in enormous disrepair. Some of them have been repaired. UNESCO has invested a lot of resources over the last 25 years into restoring old Havana, and that expansion has begun to it, that has begun to expand beyond old Havana. So, and it has expanded beyond Havana and some of uh, Cuba's other colonial cities. The preservation ethos is extremely impressive as well. 